0: So what we did, we took these characteristics, we mapped the terminology into a literature view and looked at empirical studies from more than fourteen countries. What we realized with that called Learning Through Play at School is to say you don't need to talk about play as a word. We should talk about the experience and children really enjoy learning new things. It's okay to test and trying out things and it's inherently meaningful.
1: Hello listeners, this is Bass, and producer of the show, welcoming you back to another episode of Wise Words, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds in education and beyond. Do children need to go back to school? Is it time to reassess or reconceptualize the traditional school model? Vice President and Chair of Learning Through Play of the LEGO Foundation, Bo Tierna Thompson, joins us to share some of the insights from the Foundation's recent research findings in its white paper titled Learning Through Play in Schools. Be sure to check out the links in the description for some of those resources, as well as a recent article that attempts to answer the question I posed earlier, authored by Bo himself on the WISE website. As always, be sure to subscribe to WISE Words if you haven't done so already, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your preferred podcast app. We'll now switch to host and CEO of WISE, Stavros Yunuka, to kick off the show.
2: Hello everyone, this is uh, Stavros Yanuka welcoming back for another episode of Wise Words, the podcast where we talk to the world's leading minds in education and uh, beyond. Now, it's my very uh, great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Bo Stierner-Thompson, Vice President and Chair of Learning Through Play at the LEGO Foundation. Now, the LEGO Foundation uh, is, of course, affiliated with uh, the very famous Lego uh, Corporation. Uh, I think most of us that are tuned in uh, uh, to this, uh, this podcast have experience of Lego and its uh, very, very famous uh, bricks. Now, the foundation has been on a mission to understand ways in which we can empower children to become more creative, engaged, and lifelong learners through play. Uh, in addition to their programs centered on early childhood uh, learning, they're also active contributors to global humanitarian projects that aim to introduce learning through play. Uh, Bo Stierner has spent nine years building the research capacity of the LEGO Foundation and has published widely on the subject of creativity, play and learning, and most recently on the role of play for children's learning in schools. Uh, you can find his latest article uh, on the WISE website, so be sure to sure to check the links uh, in the description to this episode uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, give it a read. Uh, Bo, welcome to WISE Words. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, yes, I am, I am the chair of Learning Through Play in the Lego Foundation, and that is meant because the Lego entities more broadly has a mission towards 2032 to establish and innovate how we think about learning through play. So uh, basically, my past work has been developing our research partnerships where we now have support of centers and institutions across US and, and, and Europe and, and China and beyond, uh, Asia. Um, but being able to advocate for the evidence we have and implement that across our more than 30 countries where we have partnerships and, and initiatives. So it's on top of mind to bring more of the evidence into our uh, international agenda. Uh, particular in which way you know play is often seen as something that's frivolous, something that's outdoor, something that's only recreational. But where our research, not only from the company insights, but from the broad research partners, indicate that these experiences are so deep and so intensely motivated that you actually also learn, remember through playful experiences. So we are committed to bring that knowledge together and try to help teachers, systems, governments, and uh, and parents to uh, to be more mindful of the qualities of these
2: approaches in your recent article is on is on our website you you actually posed the question do children need to go back to school and that's that's quite a topical uh, issue at the moment as as, uh, as you can imagine uh, around the world what are you seeing as, as some of the challenges that schools are facing uh, at the moment, in, in getting kids back into school,
0: so so I think it's uh, it's it's worth thinking about that 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 we across our work have a lot of uncertainty. Uh, so we see governments and parents and teachers not really knowing when our schools able to, able to open or how will they open and how do we want to manage this. And you know, on top of uh, of our research right now, we see teachers and parents concerned mainly about their own health, about children's health and well being but also how to manage this reality of uncertainty where they sometimes need to have better distancing, sometimes need to have adapted content and make use of new technologies. And what we're saying here is, well, instead of waiting just for everyone to get back to normal and traditional schools, let's recognize that schools have to some degree failed on delivering on many of the outcomes that we have expected to do over the, the, the past decades. When we move from millennium development goals 20 years ago to sustainable development goals and quality education, you know we haven't really figured out good ways to equip every child with good experiences and learning outcomes. So it's really critical for us to say, actually, we do have really good approaches which don't need to get fully back to a traditional thinking about schools, particularly not thinking about schools only being about academic skills. You know we hear a lot of thinking and and, and thought people about uh, you know summer loss and learning gaps and and so forth. The critical experiences we see is that academic skills language and literacy and mathematics is actually completely integrated with their social emotional learning. They are not being stressed having friends and high engagement so when we're thinking about, you know, you don't need to go back to school. Well, basically the skills that we think about, along with academic skills, are actually supported much better with blended blended learning approaches that is an integration of the home, the community, and and the and the school classroom. So so that that's where we are right now, and that's what, what you know traditional schools face this kind of push to to go back to a traditional thinking about schools as fast as possible. And there are major equity gaps we see also. You know, schools at this point do not have the quality materials, technologies, environments, and teacher capabilities. Uh, and and it it's, it does not improve by just having children going back to school. I think if I can summarize down three overall issues that we see. So when we interview uh, teachers in particular, there are a few things, particularly around curriculum and assessment, around the parent expectations, and around the pedagogies. One of the first ones around curriculum is that many cases, uh, curriculum is outdated and is relying on assessments that only narrow uh, measure narrow skills. And when you think about the integration of academic skills with social-emotional learning, how important that is, and you think more broadly about you know outcomes in schools and uh, obligations in schools, is actually thinking about children's well-being their collaboration, their emotional regulation at the same time as academic skills. It actually goes together. And the second thing is, it's it, traditional schools struggle with particular schools that operate in, in, in our environments with low socioeconomic conditions is a strong pressure from parents. Uh, and it's obviously, there's a beginning, a little tension between the systems level who create expectations about not only academics, but a range of other uh, outcomes. And parents really need to equip children with academic skills to get into schools, into higher education. I think it's very important to emphasize that academic skills does not give you a successful life. It may get you into higher education at some point, but it's only a part of the picture to be thriving, to get into workforce, and to be someone who contributes to society. So So, there's a huge challenge, I'd say, towards uh, schools in terms of the pressure from from parents, particularly in in places that are very constrained. And lastly, what we see is there is a real need for professional development among teachers. So, the pedagogies, no matter if it's blended with technologies on a distance, you know, interactions with teachers are critical. But the thing that makes a difference is a teacher who can combine instruction with guidance and with more open-ended projects. And what we see in many instances is that teachers instruct similar to when you would do like a instructional video or classroom instruction. And then they send out children for recess or free play. But the real quality is a teacher who can balance this across instruction, doing projects, uh, doing topics, engage children in, 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 in questions where they collaborate and sometimes free or open in the projects. It's a balance between these. It's not neither nor, but that's a particular pedagogical quality. So. That's that's why we see you know traditional schools are facing a challenge right now across these different issues, and I would say also in many instances uh, children are not engaged. You know, they, they switch off as soon as they have an opportunity to 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 switch off and make choices. They they, they not necessarily enjoy going to school, enjoy learning, and that's where we think is a critical part.
2: Now there's there's well there's there's a lot to unpack there, so. Let me start just by, um, I I guess, emphasizing the the, the point that you made that, um, in in fact, social emotional learning uh, is directly healthy, I guess, social emotional learning is directly correlated with um, achievement and attainment of core skills like literacy and and numeracy. how, I mean, intuitively, I, I think we we all we all understand that. How how strong is the is the evidence? Would you say that that this is in fact now the case? And the research, the scientific evidence.
0: That's very very strong. I would say uh, it's even as strong as with one of the main thing we're pushing for right now in our policies worldwide, and where we can find the best examples. Um, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's the main mechanism around emotional regulation is that if you're stressed or you, know, you are not really sure, I don't have confidence what you do, your brain switches off. You just can't keep attention. And the main mechanism for learning is to keep attention. Uh, so, when we, wh- whether we see that in humanitarian areas or children under stress because of socioeconomic conditions in the families, or whether they're stressed to perform within a certain environment or time requirement in school. When you're stressed, your brain cannot concentrate. You can't keep attention to information, and you can't regulate your emotions. So that's very, very strong. And, and our research partnerships, particularly around the University of Cambridge and also Harvard Center on Developing Child, have clearly indicated that if a child cannot emotionally re- regulate, self-regulate, then they're not able to to uh, keep attention to information. And uh, secondly, collaboration. I think we've moved many years from from thinking that that uh, learning happens in isolation. You know, even in classrooms, many tables are isolated and we are giving performance to individual students to compete against, it, against each other on grades. Actually, you know, social learning is one of the most impactful mechanisms that you imitate others, you observe others, you give feedback. Uh, and even in project-based learning, where you can see children having different types of skills, the social interactions are just critical among peers and among, of course, uh, teachers and parents and children. There's even economic benefit. You know, it is, as we see that cost of return can vary, obviously. But if you look at a cost benefit in supporting social and emotional learning, it not only supports academic skills, it's also support the lifelong outcomes on one, keeping attention to a job, or keep regulating emotion, not getting frustrated and, and angry with a particular situations. So, so that's a, that's a critical one. And it strengthens academic skills. You talk more, you have better language, and obviously you are able to, you know, keep attention longer when you're going to engage in difficult problems.
2: What, what are some of the, the formal um, uh, educational mechanisms that you've seen or courses or approaches that you know, introduce social emotional learning into, into the classroom?
0: I think most of the, of the uh, key concepts come from engaging more with open-ended projects um, or experiential learning. So whenever uh, a student is not asked to just follow a script uh, or just doing things as instructed, they need to regulate their own attention and regulate their own emotions. And the more you get out, uh, there's examples of kitchen gardens, uh, examples of projects in the community. Um, there's examples when you engage in sustainable development, development goals and discuss climate change topics. Children need to engage in dialogue with others uh, they need to be able to keep attention and figure out what's most important to them. So, generally, experiential learning, project-based learning, uh, you know, they usually increase the confidence in you doing things on your own, making choices, and work with others to re- resolve problems. I-, I think, obviously, many of the of the strong social-emotional programs also have time for reflection. They have these deep breath exercises in the morning. They have great empathy and support for teacher, uh, for peers in the classroom, uh, recognizing strengths and weaknesses. And they have time where teachers actually can engage in conversations with, with the uh, children to, to resolve and discuss particular kind of conflicts. So, so it is to some degree about the environment, the materials we provide and the types of activities, but it's also about the competency uh, of the teacher to be able to engage in these dialogues.
2: Yeah, well, you, you sort of alluded to, to where I was I was driving driving at with this question when you mentioned the deep uh, deep breathing exercises. I, I've often wondered, you know, as a sort of late um, late convert, if you will, to to mindfulness. Uh, I often wondered whether it's not something that we ought to actively uh, introduce uh, in a school uh, in a school setting. Um, so, you know, actual mindfulness training and, and, uh, uh, and, and even meditation. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are about that. And, and, you know, if you're aware of of any literature that, that, you know, might or might not support, uh, you know, such a, uh, a program.
0: I think, I think definitely aspects of mindfulness is something that's been tested now also and have certain kind of benefits. I think the, what we have looked the most is to think about children engaging longer into projects or questions that they really care about. And they're not, you know, orchestrated through only 45 minute uh, lectures where they keep switching from one topic to another and the break becomes about a lunch. So, so. I think it's very helpful, and I've seen evidence of being helpful that you help children to reflect and relax, uh, particularly at the end of lessons, that increase the consolidation and before you switch to other topics. But generally, uh, providing opportunities for children to engage in projects that are meaningful, it means actually they can determine their own speed and they can dive deep into something they care about and, you know… You've seen from, from play based examples that when children build and make things or we solve questions and problems, they're less stressed and they can guide their own flow. And that's almost like a meditative process. So, so when you, when you enjoy learning for its own sake and you see that you're challenged, that is kind of a, a process where, where 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 you are in that flow, uh, so to speak. Uh, but of course, if if that becomes uh, difficult to some activities, it's good
2: with these breaks uh, and and much more about uh, recess also. Yeah, no, I mean, I I wasn't I, you know for a moment suggesting that we uh, we we replace you know project based learning with <laughs> with uh, meditation. But you know, it, it seems that to me that you know, as you said, the two can go can go hand in hand in hand let's talk about you know again i think you alluded to it a little bit but you know lego your work specifically about learning through play um what does it you know again what what are you discovering um about um about play and maybe let's you know draw here the distinction between uh, I guess free play and maybe structured play is you know is is, is that something that you're exploring?
0: Yes, we, I think we are, We've been exploring all aspects of play over the past two g- decades since we started working with the Learn, LEGO Learning Institute back in 2000 and, and publishing whole child development guides. The, the major difference right now, I'd say, is we tend to focus on play as an activity, as you say, structured play, unstructured play, or games building with bricks, outdoor physical play. These are particular types of play activities. And we can all understand them. You, you go play football or you play a game, and there are benefits associated with it, whether it's games and problem solving or objects and manipulation or physical exercise or symbols and so forth. The key difference we're seeing is we want to focus on the experience, the emotional and cognitive experience. So even if I'm playing football or engaged in a game, I may not enjoy it because people have told me to do it. So what we have identified now over the past uh, five, six years with our partners is there are certain characteristics about that experience that not only means you enjoy learning new things, you experiment, iterate, you are interacting with others, and it's inherently meaningful. These are some of the characteristics, but actually it helps you to remember things. And it helps you to practice things while you do things. So what we've done is to say these are the characteristics from neuroscience which trigger multiple brain networks, have a deeper experience no matter what activity you do. Let's compare that to what educational approaches exist right now in schools. So what we did, we took these characteristics, we mapped the terminology into a literature view and looked at empirical studies from more than 14 countries and looked at what are the kinds of approaches that is able to do that and deliver learning outcomes what we realized with that called learning through play at school is to say, you don't need to to talk about play as a word. You should talk about the experience. It's really enjoy learning new things. It's okay to test and trying out things, and it's inherently meaningful. That actually do exist in education. It's just called something else. It's called active learning, experiential learning, project based learning, problem-based learning, some aspects of inquiry-based learning, and collaborative forms of learning. What we saw from these studies is, if you're able to do these kind of approaches, you not only support the academic skills, you have deeper reasoning, science, mathematics, but you also support social skills, emotional regulation, to some extent, creativity, and that's high engagement. So, so I think what, what we do hope for also, you know, coming back to thinking about schools, let's don't create this false dichotomy between play and learning or between academic skills or social emotional. It is a balance to think about that everything that reinforces children's choices and the quality around them actually helps them learn. And it helps them not only remember things, but practically apply that into to real projects and problems. So so that's a, the that's a research we've done right now. I'm mean, really enthusiastic now in testing it out in several countries and teachers' professional development. And what are the enabling factors that can help that?
2: Well, I mean, that's encouraging to hear because, you know, but I mean, listening to you again, it's again, it's great that we now have kind of hard research to to back uh, some of these um, uh, findings. Um, intuitively, though, again, we've known for a while now that you know, learning by doing, um, you know, project-based learning, um, you know, is is uh, perhaps a better way to organize, you know, to organize learning. Um, and yet we haven't re- really been able to move, you know, beyond the few, a relatively small number growing, but still relatively small number of, you know, I would say high end type of, of, uh, of schools. What, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, why, why is it taking us so long to, to go mainstream with these, mm. with these approaches?
0: Yeah. That's a really good question. And that's what we are targeting now with the foundation efforts is a, it's, it's a systems change. We believe it is many things around the system that haven't really reinforced these approaches enough. And it's also not easy. I must say it, it, it is a different way of thinking about how we were taught in school and how teachers are, are, are educated. So we are, we are doing it in multiple different ways. We are supporting a completely new. Uh, pre-service teacher professional development in Denmark, for instance, we're equipping a new curriculum for teachers with play labs at the teacher colleges, and we are supporting professional development among teachers also in the school. But, but I think it's coming back a little bit to the to the factors I mentioned before. If from a systems level and a curriculum curriculum level, it's not reinforced that skills or, or competencies are integrated in the curriculum it's very difficult to incentivize these types of approaches. So one needs the competency-based curriculum and articulate that the purpose of a class or school is to have both socially engaging children and emotionally engaged and the curriculum. Uh, so that kind of broad picture needs to be embedded in how we think about outcomes. What Another key factor we've looked at is assessment. So when you think about assessments, which usually about these annual or biannual standardized assessments to look at accountability across the system, the thing that works for, for learning is a range of other types of assessments. So it's integrated assessments as part of the school where children give each other feedback, peer assessments, it's, uh, you know, making uh, learning visible. So they put things on the wall, you know, they come into each other work. They do multiple choices, they invent their own tests. So a different thinking about how assessment assessments can be integrated and used for the purpose of, of, of teaching and, and students' learning instead of for, for the system level. And then, as I mentioned, it, it, it is, you know, from a teacher point of view, this ability to think about questions and give projects, but to collaborate. Is quite a different mindset than necessarily being fully confident in instructing. So there are fantastic teachers who instruct really well, but in order to think more broadly about these competencies and get these uh, practices to work, you need to think about questions and problems, uh, longer-term projects, that is not only four to five-minute lectures. So the flexible scheduling is quite important. I think the main evidence we, we have been really accursed, curious about is, is actually from Denmark. Denmark here over the past months. So what happened in Denmark? Uh, we had the, the lockdown of schools, and quite quickly uh, children became back came back to schools, but under certain restrictions. Uh, so of course the distancing and time and so forth. So we evaluated, you know, what happened in that kind of uh, coming back to school. And the key things that were different here was that it was a more flexible schedule. So teachers were able to more flexibly figure out time in the school. They were more flexible in the assessment because the assessments uh, before summer was canceled. They were more able to use outdoor learning, outdoor spaces, and more project-based forms of learning. And these are kind of key factors that actually help the teachers. They actually have more collaborative learning, more project-based learning, uh, more meaningful tasks, and uh, uh, students and teachers highly, in, highly enjoy these forms of teaching approaches. So I think being more flexible in the way that teachers can act within the guidelines, because they, they, most of them know what it means to teach and they know the quality of how to deliver it, but but the flexibility is not really there for them to. To determine how to do that, so at least that's some of the examples. I'm I'm probably the first to say that Denmark is not the best example globally. Uh, it is a big switch to these kind of approaches, but these are some of the factors that are very important.
2: Yeah. No. Again, there's there's a lot there to to, to work through. I mean, on, on on the testing, I you know I I, I can again I, I can appreciate some of the things that you're you're proposing. You know, I, I do still see a role for some form of standardized testing to, in order to sort of benchmark and and understand you know where you know where the system is, you know, in terms of of uh, you know, and I, and I think PISA for all you know, for all all its many uh, critics that it has is, is actually sort of a pretty good tool in in that sense for you know for, for benchmarking. The, the problem becomes when you start using these kinds of tests either as a form of kind of league table or your competition, or where you know you make uh, um, you make them very high stakes, meaning, you know, you don't pass the test, you don't move or or you know access to university is limited only for the you know um so so that's where i you know that's where i see i think one that there is a need to um to have some kind of standardized testing happening just so that you can you know understand where you are as a system but but i think we should make it you know we should de-risk if you will the um the, these tests in other words not not have such draconian consequences for individuals who don't, you know, who don't make the uh, make the cut, absolutely agree. Uh,
0: I think I think that that is one of the core points. It's not we're not saying that standard testing are not not uh, needed, not useful for certain aspects, particularly on a systems level. Uh, and one of the aspects that we have been working with OHD on was the the, the the testing on creativity which is now part of a special domain in 2021. I think that's one of the interesting parts. You can say, can you even standardize a test around creativity? Well, that has, that was a big effort. Uh, but but it's interesting to begin to have a discussion to say, let's compare countries and have a dialogue around not who's best or worst, but but what does it mean to enable creativity uh, when we think about ways to, to describe it? Uh, so, so I think if we also think about different skills that are important and not only the high-stakes academic skills and children do do uh, differently on, on these different types of assessment I think that's a that's a good direction I'm, I'm really encouraged to see what happens to creativity uh, next year particularly because the places that have been able to support children to express ideas problem solve uh, collaborate with others actually also, were the ones that demonstrated high academic skills. Uh, we we even had uh, you know we have a partnership long term with Tsinghua University in China. Their, their main idea was to move from A grade A grade students to X students. If we can think about higher education to do a pull for collaboration and creativity and learning to learn and problem solving, to not keep academic skills at the only high stakes more about the empathy and, and so forth, so then, then I think there's also a different pool at the systems level that can help us uh, change a little perspective on, on, on what we are evaluating how. You know,
2: I mean just switching tack a little bit, um, one of the you know one of the pitfalls I guess of and again I think you alluded to this of, of sort of advocating for learning through play is is the fact that sort of play is you know is is associated with with fun and a certain you know certain amount of frivolity perhaps you know how how do we sort of counter you know some of those negative if you will stereotypes associated with with the word play so the the
0: the main kind of approach here is something around terminology also uh, so, it's kind of debugging what, what is meant by play. But we had deliberately had to kind of describe, like, when we talk about play, you know, what are the characteristics associated with that experience of play? Uh, how does it relate to the research, the evidence behind it? And how does it look like into a pedagogy or a project or an activity afterwards? So, so the, the general notion about uh, play being frivolous is because we sometimes say it's a UN rights of the child, it's play, is about recreation. But the other mechanism we, we, that's really important is to, to think about is that learning. Like If we really keep in mind what we talked about before, that social and emotional self-regulation, collaboration and creativity and physical uh, development is critical as part of academic skills, play becomes a natural uh, means to achieve that. So, so if you think about what governments are requesting right now, what makes uh, adults successful in the workplace... It's really about problem solving. It's about switching tasks. It's about regulating your emotions and selecting your own, own priorities. So, so to some degree, when we think about how we educate children, you know, it's almost like two switches. Children are playing. They are collaborating. They're negotiating in the kindergarten. To some degree, you go a little bit into a stereotypical classroom, a little bit like an isolated world, and then suddenly come to the real world, switching to practice, where you have to suddenly collaborate, negotiate, come up with ideas, be self-paced. I think if we can align more our thinking about the skills we need, combined with knowing, interesting in knowing new things, then we can also think about a different Different uh, path for for play. And play is about fun. It's inherently about fun, but it's also fun when it's difficult. You enjoy things the most when you have to struggle with something, and then you figure it out, and then you get a reward. Say, oh, yes, I did it." And I think that's um, you know, it it is a, a big dialogue in many communities who just want to kind of find their own needs and controversies. We think there's a great opportunity to help the language and find a balance in in, in these
2: yeah no and it, look I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned you know d- difficulty because i i also think one of the and if i may make a suggestion i think one of the things to also emphasize is that play you know especially if you're dealing for example with you know you mentioned football the the you know <laughs> playing football and it sort of you know t- took me back to my um sort of uh, especially kind of primary school we 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 would take football very very seriously uh and you know we would ha- you know we would play you know every break there was you know a football game on and and one of the things you learn there it's not just the value of teamwork but it's it's also that you know sometimes you're going to lose and you know and how you conduct yourself and how you deal with you know with losing uh, not winning right is 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 also an important uh, element, right? Um, and again, just to stay with with sports, I think you know to to get good at any sport, right requires for you know practice requires you know hard work. and it's it's actually not always fun, right? I mean, I don't know, you know, if you if you play tennis or you follow tennis, but, you know, if you want to get good at tennis, you have to, you know, practice, you know, your serve, you know, again and again and again and again until you get it right. Now, I haven't heard anyone who says, oh, I, you know, I love, you know, throwing this ball in the air and hitting it, you know, with my racket, you know, 50, 100 times, you know, a day until I get it right. But, you know, so I think, you know, equally with with, with Lego, I mean, I, I used to love Lego as a, as a kid. Okay, so I'll disclose myself as a as a bit of a fan of, of the product. But, you know, some of those Lego kits are not easy, right? You wouldn't, you know, you would have to spend hours piecing them together. Sometimes you get things wrong, you go back to the instructions, you know. So, you know, I think emphasizing also that the play can involve actually learning some hard skills, if you will, in terms of, you know, toughness, in terms of patience, perseverance. Um, you know, I guess, you know, I think Angela Duckworth and and others have used the term grit to, you know, to, to emphasize some of these character traits. Again, I think that might help also kind of shift the narrative a little bit that here, we're not just talking about, you know, um, you know, uh, Joy and glee and and and, and fun, you know, hundred percent of the time.
0: Yeah, exactly. that's
2: not, not realistic either in terms of of life. I mean, if we care about adulthood at the end of the day and well functioning adults.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that I think these are good examples. And, and the particular aspects of what you're saying that that helps illustrate the concept. I think. Sometimes we talk about fun, uh, and it is fun, It's, it's, but it's usually momentarily experience of enjoying something uh, where, where the joy of learning is what you're saying. It is also diving into things that are sometimes difficult and you're really invested in trying to figure out what it is. And that joy of trying things out and overcoming difficulties is an experience that's more rewarding. And that's what we look at. It's like, what are the reward mechanisms that makes you want to do this again? And actually, that pleasure is higher. So that enjoyment is, uh, is is critical. But but it's also critical that you enjoy it. Even you say it's difficult with football or other things. You in, you keep doing it if someone asks you not to do it or or I don't tell you to do it, uh, as I say. So so if you have choice, you will continue doing it. I think that's where the most studies have been looking at that that in, increase in self control, attention, and aspects of grit you know, that that people will be supporting that and keep doing it if they have choices. They only do that if they find it enjoyable. Another um, aspect which I think is quite important is to which degree we introduce practice. Uh, so there's some really good studies on, on sports. And, and actually I talked to Karolina Wojniagi about it, the Danish tennis star a half year ago, that in terms of how you develop these competences and how you play. Usually we say deliberate play for the first twelve years and then it's more about deliberate practice. People talk a lot about the deliberate practice about practicing to become really good. But but the the the, the science behind play would say you need to try a lot of different things before knowing what you're really good at and what you're really interested in. So so many of the really phenomenal uh, tennis players and football players actually had a lot of different sports. They tried a lot of different things. They were throwing a ball in all kinds of different directions before they figured out how they can really get it right. So deliberate play means being allowed to experiment and try things out until you really got to know what you're good at, what you're interested in. And then you can actually improve that and you find joy in being better and joy in mastery. So, so that the developmental trajectory of that is interesting and how we introduce that in school instead of saying also in, in early early schooling now you're really good and it's only literacy and numeracy that's really good what are your interests what what are the kind of different ways you can demonstrate that and the products you can dive into so there's a lot of, uh, of things to learn from from this piece and also what I think what what's about a thriving workplace nowadays you know uh, we, we enjoy things that are difficult
2: yeah No, it, it's interesting and, I, and again, yeah I mean I, I think there's a sort of balanced approach I was I was sort of smiling when you mentioned the uh you, you know the 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 tennis players advice and you know trying different things and and I was thinking there is a there's a counter narrative I I don't know there's a, a several years ago now there was a, a great documentary called uh, Jiro dreams of sushi about this very very famous um uh, japanese sushi uh chef who's in his in his 90s and and at the time was still still going strong running his very small, but very highly, you know, uh, recognized restaurant. And he was told, you know, he was reflecting on how he got into, you know, how he developed his passion. And he said, well, you know what, you know, I I didn't know what I was passionate about. I, you know, I just kept going, you know, and then when I became good at something, I developed a passion for it. So flipping it the, you know, the, the other way, you know, and maybe this is sort of a, you know, a little bit of a difference in the the, the more Confucian cultures versus the more Western cultures but but you know in in my view, I think it's a balance right Sometimes you have to power through you know a certain plateauing, a certain you know disappointment, get good, and then you're going to start enjoying enjoying something because you're good right
0: yeah I, I, at least I think in, you know iteration is one of our characteristics also that that you are trying things out and figuring things out and testing whether it works and, and uh, before you really know how it works for you and, 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 and how you get better at it. And, and you know, that is also enjoying trying out new, new things. And that's a natural capacity for children. say they definitely try out different things and they don't necessarily try the easiest things. <laughs> when they're young. Um, so, so I also think, again, when you think about education and schools and so forth, this ability to think about that children are should try out different things. That's not a predefined path, but actually they can probably express and try out different things. And that might be things that, they, that some children enjoy more than other children. I think that, that's also part of that kind of
2: movement. Are you, um, as, as we, you know, come come into sort of the final uh final few minutes of this, uh, podcast, but what are, what are your thoughts? I mean, you know, I think, I think you've written that that you feel like we're on the brink of a, uh, of a revolution in how, you know, play can, can be used to develop knowledge and skills, you know, across home, school and, and community. Um, are you, are you hopeful? Can you say a little bit more about that? Why, why are you so kind of optimistic that we're on the brink of this? This, this it, it's definitely,
0: or... you know, at this point, it, it could probably go uh, multiple ways. Uh, you know, it, it there is kind of a narrative a little bit that we now need to make up for learning loss uh, and children get back to school and catch up on academic skills. But there's another narrative which makes quite promising. And that is when we now begin to recognize that well-being and social emotional learning is so critical for children along academic knowledge. I think that's, that's one of the revolutions to say, you know, we cannot only focus on the narrow outcomes of academic skills. And actually, parents have learned a lot about what teaching and learning is about during these periods of, uh, of being more engaged with, with children. But, but this balance um, makes me, you know, it sounds quite promising that we don't need to create the dichotomy between academic skills, broader skills, and high engagement children really and students really want to uh, to learn and then i see the blended forms of learning being quite promising i think it's uh, you know you still have this thinking that if you bring children to one classroom uh, with teachers, that's where the most of the quality of learning happens. Actually, it happens outside the classroom. Also, it happens in the community. It happens in the in 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 the homes. So I'm very, you know, I think I think we are at the brink of revolution in the sense that we actually can use much bigger part of the resource and experience that children have to support their engagement and enjoyment in learning. So now, when when the family and the home experience when they're close to things that are meaningful, if you think about how they use the outdoors how they use the science centers, how they engage other materials, that actually this can also be part of thinking about supporting both academic skills and, and, and learning. And we don't need to think only about the classroom and the teacher as, uh, as the single uh, solution to that. So there's really good examples in which way technologies have used to bridge that in terms of documentation, different formats of social collaboration online. And that's I think that's where we can probably, you know, create some effectiveness maybe save resources and still use technologies for for pedagogical purposes and interactions so in in that case um i think we have seen and particularly with examples i mentioned before that that in some instances we will become we'll be forced to think a little bit alternatively about uh schools uh broader outcomes and the purpose of education and think more creatively about how we use the resources and inspiration for children that's such inspiration such materials in the city in the community at homes that can be used instead of only the knowledge and the pen and paper in the classroom
2: so you you've sort of because we, we had we we have a sort of question from one of our audience members um, he asks how do you see incorporating play with learning as the world is rapidly moving towards online education and I mean there's there's a couple of things there I mean one do you do you see this move towards online education as as a uh, temporary um, adaptation, or is this going to be something that's more permanent? And if so, then you know, I, I think you sort of answered the second part of the question, which is how do you incorporate play? Um, but but maybe maybe say a little more more about it.
0: So uh, we, we've studied a lot in terms of how technologies are used both among children and also for for distance learning here over the past month. Uh, I think the starting point for all of this is technologies are completely integrated with how children play and learn nowadays. We've just done a deep study in South Africa and UK and it's online uh, just for, for months or so. Children use technologies while they paint, while they read, while they move around with uh, telephones anywhere in the world. So technologies cannot be uh, only thought about as a mechanism for delivery. It's actually integrated with the way children learn and develop academically, holistically, and technically. So I think that 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 just needs to be on the mindset of everyone that we can create this artificial difference between technologies that are not for learning and and, and then uh, traditional forms of uh, teaching. But the second thing is, I think we begin to understand the nuance of how technology can be used. So if uh, there's a clear purpose of the – and there's some of the evidence from the Education Endowment Foundation in the UK – if a teacher establishes a clear purpose of what to teach uh, and still being available for feedback uh, and social interactions, there's no reason why we shouldn't use technologies for children to navigate information, search up good projects find answers to things, criticize content, and so forth. So the critical use of technologies in that way is very promising. And it gives flexibility in the teaching approach. So if you harness the use of technology, not only information, but how you collaborate, you actually have a greater opportunity to flexibly adjust the the, the, the the teaching style in the curriculum. And you can even support uh, children's uh, greater independence, so, so I, for us, it's you know there are particular nuances in how you can use technology right now, where children can work more independently, have social support, and where teachers can spend time interacting with children when they have the real difficulties in giving feedback, instead of uh, only uh, transmitting knowledge, which is uh, usually most of the time spent in, in, in classrooms. Uh, so, in that mind, there's no real solution and you know silver bullet to technology or edtech. But but you've seen some very promising model for how to use technologies for project based learning, problem based learning, and these, these more adaptive pedagogies.
2: And then another question that's just come in now. You know, switching. You know, now to, to governments. Um, this this listener is is saying that you know he, he comes from a country where the curriculum reigns supreme, and you know schooling is is about cramming information into children. How can governments be convinced to allow free learning or learning through play? I guess it's showing the evidence and, and, and
0: advocating for it. It's definitely showing the evidence. What, what we do in the foundation, and we are exactly, that's kind of the, the nut we're trying to crack when we work in East Africa, South Africa, Asia, Middle, Latin America also. Uh, governments are looking for evidence. They're, they're looking for what works. Uh, but they also look for things that work in their context. And I think that's the, the challenging piece right now. So, so we have really great examples of these types of projects and approaches that you also illustrated before. But really figuring out how you can mobilize uh, the local workforce and find the resources in uh, in, the, in the environments they are in is a, is a little more difficult. So we are we are supporting a range of these uh, both community projects, uh, uh, local uh, teacher development institutions to to illustrate how that works, and it, it does come uh with some costs i would say you know if if children are cramped, 30 30 children in a small room and don't have access to quality materials and technologies and teachers who would like to you know have a passion for 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 children to learn it it, it is very very difficult but again if you can free, free up the opportunities and constrain to think broadly about what is the environment we create for children and and we actually made a tool for this the, the key thing you should focus on when you enter a classroom, uh, when you equip a supervisor, sometimes that's what, you know, you know, governments usually do. They ask supervisors to look for particular kind of outcomes. If you can equip the supervisors to look for engagement and to, to, to look for whether to actually collaborate and actually try to test and try out things and teachers are engaged in conversations with them, that would greatly help the teachers to flip to a different way of using their pedagogies because at this point, you know, the accountability lies in, in the narrow academic skills, and that's what we want to kind of balance out. Um, so in the curriculum and assistance reform implementation in terms of supervisors, and then at, at all costs, try to implement child-friendly and play-based approaches in, in the policies. There are no singular policy that talks about children in many instances in the world, and not about play at all. So we have to think about into education, into health, into recreation, into culture. Else, it, it becomes something that is nice to have. Uh, but it is, a, it is, a, it's a, it's a key point. In, in US, we just la- launched a whole learner uh, policy. We have a policy playbook in US for whole learning approaches. Um, so there are examples where but this is a, the, the big lift.
2: Bo, well, um, it's been an absolute. Uh, pleasure having you on the on the podcast I I feel like we could uh, we could probably carry on for another you know 45 minutes to uh, to an hour and, and and maybe we should schedule a, uh, a follow-up uh, podcast you know to uh, it'll be great to sort of hear back from you in terms of, of some of the things that you're trying out in uh, in different part of the uh, parts of the world posterna uh, thank you very much for your wise words and for being with us.
0: Thank you very much.